Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and my dearest brother, Graham Goodwin of DailySportsCar.com. As we get into the Weekend Sports Cars episode, missed you the last week or two, my friend, but also very thankful your young Jedi, Stephen Kilby, could keep the seat warm on my behalf. Uh, it's it's been fun, but mate, we've missed you. Um, I know there's still a way to go before uh, things get to a kind of regular thing for you guys. Thoughts are obviously with both yourself and Gibral, but uh, yeah, Stephen stepped in. Um, Great job. Well, you know, we even had you know a couple of soapbox rants from Kilby. So I think if anything, he's getting a bit too comfortable. He's too young. I mean, seriously, you haven't lived enough to have an opinion yet, Kilby. For real? Are you kidding me here? <laughs> It, it, that's reserved for old farts who think they know stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. Errantly, usually. All right, pal. So we're going to blast through as many things as we possibly can. Well, well it's only fair uh, since I've been holding the fort. And, you know, it's a big fort. Let's face it, MP. That, uh, I was get that a fat from... joke? That was a fat joke. Good. No. We're back no. to normal. I like that. No. Um, <laughs> oh, offended now. Let's get over that. Right. Uh, but my choice is going to be IMSA. We're going to throw you straight back in at the deep end. And I'm just going to feed these questions to you like a frenzied gibbon for throwing its own feces. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Hashtag frenzied gibbon throwing feces. Absolutely. Oh, good Lord. This thing's already crashed and we're just a few minutes uh, in. Uh, um, right then. Uh, first one comes from Texan Dan at Texan Hombre Twitter. I'm guessing he's from Texas. Um, he says, why does Audi seem to do so much better in other series than IMSA? Yeah, I guess I would add to that, Dan, that when we have European teams come over and play with their Audis and IMSA, they do astonishingly well. Uh, the land team coming to mind, obviously. I think there's a couple of quick things that stand out immediately. I don't know if all of them hold real weight or gravity, but... One, I think usage that might, that's probably the dumbest thing of all, but usage, I think in many cases, the teams in Europe that have their R8 LMS GT3s tend to use them a lot, tend to be on track a lot. I don't know if I can say the same about all that have used them here in the USA. Secondarily, I've mentioned this before in the podcast, Graham. It is a fact. I know it to be fact because I've heard it from people within the organization saying it's a fact. And it's that, at least on the U.S. side, the customer support engagement has definitely not been level with the vast majority of other manufacturers playing in uh, if we're talking strictly IMSA, it's GT Daytona category. Also, if we look across in the uh, what we're just going to call World Challenge forever in their GT class, we know for sure that many of the manufacturers that are routinely finishing ahead of Audi happen to have manufacturers in a Pro-Am class that while it's not, quote, factory-backed, um, there are certain incentives that manufacturers offer and Audi has routinely lost that battle and has just simply not, by measuring what the other manufacturers are offering, whether it is a little bit of money, whether it's time on seven-post shaker rigs, just driver simulators, all the things that would help a team to be more competitive, Audi has not measured up. And I would say that from a European standpoint, I believe they absolutely have. 
uh, to close this, Graham and our pal Texan Dan, everything I've heard has said it is a unique American shortcoming. The engagement within Audi of America to really go as hard as the other manufacturers in GTD through finances, through staffing, through expertise, it's not there. Uh, the, the biggest signal of this, who is who was the person in charge of all this trying to help lend expertise? Brad Kettler, the great Brad Kettler. Uh, at the end of 2018, Brad Kettler is no longer involved whatsoever, and that was a decision made by Audi of America. You reap what you sow, guys, and if you are not committed uh, in the ways that you should be, well, here we are with Audi almost not represented in GT in any substantive way. It's unfortunate. It is that, uh, and lest we thought that it was just Audi amongst the German ran- manufacturers that were um, bothering our uh, our listeners, uh, we've got Adam Smith from uh, Facebook who asked a question about BMW in IMSA. Has BMW said anything about continuing in IMSA? I may have missed it, but are they withdrawing from GTE, GTLM competition altogether? Uh, you and I, Graham, at Sebring, uh, the two of us seem to recall BMW Motorsport boss Jens Marquardt saying, no, IMSA's good. We like IMSA. This does something for us, big market. So, and things we have heard following that as well would certainly suggest that they intend to stay in play. I have not made the time or had the ability to check in as much as I would want on the team side, but this is routinely the, the portion of the year, Graham and Adam, where these kinds of discussions are held. BMW is notorious, in the USA at least, for doing one-year contracts. And they have a fairly well-known policy of wanting to always put their motorsport contracts up for bid, just from a fair practices standpoint. And this is kind of the phase where that tends to happen. So I've heard nothing about the whole thing's going away. But also say that coming into 2019, the Rahal Letterman-Lanigan team that facilitates BMW's GTLM effort made further in significant investments in personnel to try and make it even stronger and more competitive. So I don't believe any of that would have been done if there was a strong indicator or belief held internally that this whole thing was going away stateside at the end of 2019. Okay. Um, Something's a bit different from Matthew Lewis, again from Facebook, uh, asked about part Fermi rules in IMSA or WEC. I can certainly comment on WEC. Are there any part Fermi rules for IMSA and WEC, and how do those rules compare to F1 or IndyCar? Well, I guess uh, the easiest one for, to compare is going to be IndyCar and IMSA, MP, because you've had experience of both. Yeah, I love the question here, Matthew, because when I read it, the first thing that came to mind is, boy, there sure are different rules. Well, more accurately... I won't compare whatever the written rules happen to be, maybe more the established physical practices. In IMSA, there's a really heavy, don't touch it, don't even look at it. Just turn your back and pretend it's not there. Uh, IMSA has its rules in qualifying where you cannot touch the car. There was a bit of acrimony. I'm trying to remember whether it was earlier this year or earlier last year where I think it was you know, a crew member um, mistakenly touched the car, tripped, was falling, something put his hand on the car to keep himself from, from hitting the ground, and there were real questions as to whether that car's qualifying time might be disallowed 
Uh, and then there was a bit of sanity that prevailed that no, no, there was no manipulation of the vehicle. It was just, does the guy do a face plant or try and stop himself? So there's a very real, I would say, strong sense of no touching, no manipulation, period. IndyCar, same thing, just not as staunch. So there's the, everyone knows you're not supposed to, and you're not supposed to mess with it. But I can tell you that, you know, it's a little more laissez-faire in how it is practiced uh, in reality compared to uh, by the letter. So very drastic differences between the two. And uh, just as a quick sidebar on the IndyCar side, not saying that their technical staff uh, and whatnot are any less robust than IMSA's or the WEC's, but there are times I've noticed, say, in Victory Lane where the celebration's going on and there's someone standing next to each car where I'm pretty well convinced that the person tending to the car from the series, Graham, should not also be looking up watching the victory lane celebrations <laughs> again i'm not saying it always happens i just have noticed as someone who often shoots photos in victory lane to use for whatever thing that i'm filing like you know i think i could probably reach over and do something and no one would notice and if i could do that then boy someone else could too so yeah definitely a difference here matthew uh, Matt Niedert, uh, Facebook, says uh, Scott Atherton will be giving the annual State of the Series presentation later this week. Last year, there were big changes like the prototype class uh, split the GTD Sprint Cup. He says probably no such large changes for 2020, but any rumours of pending announcements before the 2020 schedule coming later this week? Or is there anything you're hoping to hear Scott mention in the way of changes? Well, we can unveil a hashtag breaking exclusive scoop here no on the weekend sports cars yes we do yes we are the global authority on sports cars <laughs> or something uh <laughs> i don't know or not a global authority on condiments Stuff. and Stuff. hot dogs um we're going to have a brand new there's going to be a dedicated lmp2 class for the rally multimatic mark 30 unfortunately Excellent. there's only one car entered but I hear there's great potential. Uh, Matt, I think I think set your expectations a little bit low in terms of big, bombshell, fun, interesting stuff. Rumors of what I've heard might be coming in the announcements. I think we're going to just get a little bit more clarity on DPI 2.0. I think anybody would expect that to be part of uh, the, the major annual address from Scott Atherton. I think, and this would just be another practical thing that almost anybody would be surprised if if it isn't heard, owing to the car count problems that IMSA has had with spinning off LMP2 into its own category, I've, I've heard no rumblings of LMP2 being folded back into DPI, going to a unified prototype class and doing the whole performance balancing thing between disparate types of prototypes that never worked. I've heard nothing about that. I think, though, I'd be surprised, and we, I think, collectively would be surprised if there wasn't something, Matt, that said, hey, yeah, the car counts aren't that big. Costs are maybe part of it. Competitions may be part of it. What if we were to think more GTD Sprint Cup with LMP2 and do some sort of shorter schedule that 
hey, you can come out and play whenever you want, but let's really try and concentrate championship-wise. Maybe something that's a little more cost-effective, maybe that will help stoke interest in folks using whatever number of unused LMP2 cars are here now. I mean, I know United Auto Sports cars are sitting in Florida, uh, or actually, I believe Indianapolis, but regardless, they're sitting in the U.S. doing nothing right now. There's certainly other P2 chassis doing nothing right now. Could that be the thing that helps uh, teams like Performance Tech, Pier 1 Matheson, and any others? Uh, maybe JDC Church to get back involved just to put cars on track if the price point is certainly more tolerable. So something in that direction. I don't think, Graham, we're going to hear a ton on the GT side because I can't think of much um, that would need addressing. So beyond that, I don't think there's a ton coming, Matt. Uh, and honestly, that wouldn't be the worst thing. I do know that there's... So we're recording this on a Wednesday morning. It'll go up here in a couple hours, so I can't get into things right now. But there's there's going to be an interesting announcement tomorrow that is not sports car or IMSA related. But there's going to be a very interesting announcement tomorrow that is going to have or that is scheduled for tomorrow that will indeed either have a direct impact or at least have a the potential of a significant impact on IMSA here in the coming years. So I wish I could tell you more. I'm under embargo on it, uh, but can just tell you that uh, check out racer.com tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, and I'll go into it as much as I can in that article about how this uh, hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. No, it's not exclusive or a scoop, but on uh, what's coming could actually impact them in a surprising way. Uh, tires. Doug Bonham from Facebook this time. Is, Hi, Doug. Uh, he's uh, talking about some uh, material that we've had on both racer.com and dailysportscar.com about Goodyear coming back into the WC. Great reporting and theorizing about Goodyear's return of the WC uh, and what ripple effects could be felt in years to come. Do you know if there could be moves by any OEMs in GTLM away from Michelin or the return of a privateer effort uh, a la uh, Falcon Tire and IMSA focused on Goodyear or any other non-Bibendum brand. I could give you a couple of uh, ifs and buts and maybes away from IMSA on that. Give here, me which is, your buts, Graham. Well, well, here we go. Here's the but. Um, and it, what a nice but it is. Uh, the uh, main thing here is we're setting ourselves up here for what's already been telegraphed, which is single-make tire suppliers in every class in the WEC. And the jungle drums appear to be playing a tune that says, whoever gets hypercar will also get LP2. And that that will lead to a process that means that the competing tire supplier, always assuming it's still the two, would therefore get both GTE classes. That could be messed with by the fact that there is a third in the wings at the moment. Uh, I'm aware of who that is. I don't think that they've got much of a prayer of actually getting a foot in the door, but uh, we do appear, MP, to be heading down the lines of very much more IMSA-like um, tyre picture in the WEC, and that is coming simply to, equalize, to help to equalise hypercar. Where I think this could be interesting, Doug, and I have no intel on whether it would actually happen. Just trying to think of American realities here, which are very different 
from everything that's coming here on the European side with the WEC and Goodyear. In the good old U.S. of A., Dunlop is a non-entity as a brand. So if we look at the Dunlops being refashioned as Goodyear's and Goodyear really being uh, the name and brand that will be elevated on the European front, I think that's really, really smart for them. If we look here in the U.S. and what Goodyear does, they were once massive in everything. They were IndyCar, they were IMSA, they were NHRA, and they were NASCAR. I mean, truly, there was a long stretch, honestly, until about 95, 94, 95, when Firestone came in on the IndyCar side. But for the longest time, the majority of my lifetime, I can say for sure that in the USA, motor racing tires equated to Goodyear. That's changed. Firestone's been sole supplier, ran Goodyear off from IndyCar, both cart and IRL because their tires were that much better. IMS has obviously been through a lot of changes over the years. Tire manufacturers have come and gone, more or less settled on uh, Michelin as the best, period, which we saw in the American Le Mans series. Uh, Grand Am in a very different place. Names changed. It's more or less the same brand between uh, Hoosier than it was uh, under the Continental brand and such. Interesting, though, Graham, that of all the things here in the USA, knowing that there is this brand shift to the Goodyear name that has just been pillar here in the U.S., I keep wondering, like Doug, could there be something coming in IMSA? I do not believe Goodyear would spend any money to help facilitate a semi-works privateer team like they did with, or like the Falcon Tire program existed. But I am curious, though, because the one place where Goodyear truly stands out today is NASCAR. And so that's the big raging monster of motorsports in the U.S. But we also know that it's no longer as big as it once was. And so part of me wonders and has been wondering, Doug, especially since Graham in the daily sports car team did an amazing job to bring this Goodyear story to the front. If NASCAR is losing audience every year and its big impact is, is no longer what it once was. IMSA by comparison is still, it's not even recognizable in terms of North American recognition in motor as a sport. But if NASCAR's impact is dialing down Graham, Part of me wonders if maybe it would be wise for Goodyear to consider a GTLM supply offer or something along those lines to actually put its product, as it did decades ago in IMSA, in front of the type of people who would potentially go and actually buy them. I don't know if anybody watching a NASCAR race sees Goodyear's and says, gotta have them, but they're certainly there. We know in sports car racing, probably more than any any other form of racing, people will, very discerning people are observing the performance uh, coming from whatever it is, a tire, a shock absorber, a whatever, just the vehicle itself, and use what they see to inform highly educated buying decisions. So be interesting to see, Doug, if Goodyear recognizes that, okay, NASCAR is still a thing. It's just maybe not getting us what it once did. Maybe we should go to the heart and soul of people who really do discern between tire brands and show them what we can do today. 
be interesting, won't it, at the end of the multi-year deal that uh, Michelin have actually got, whether or not they've got competition for that deal uh, further down the line. It's certainly interesting to see the Goodyear brand back, particularly interesting that it's a completely new range of tyres. It is not rebranded Dunlops in the WEC, but a completely new range of tyres. Um, back to current uh, IMSA grid, and Karen Pires uh, Frederico from Facebook says, uh, with Master back-to-back recent success, can we assume they'll be hit with BOP? They've been bopped, Kevin, yes. As one would expect, I've been impressed here, Graham, with IMSA and their willingness to adhere to the rules they've set out for themselves, which is one saying that we're not going to be making knee-jerk reactions through BOP. We actually have a duration of time before we will allow ourselves to make another one. And unless I have completely gotten my calendar wrong i believe they have adhered to that obviously with mazda being really 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 fast and winning the last two races its first two races uh since imsa came back to life in 2014 yeah i i'm sure the folks at mazda are saying come on man <laughs> we want a couple more before you turn off the the, the fun spigot um hashtag fun spigot um but Hashtag me personally. Let's just do the rest of the show speaking in hashtags. Uh, hashtag me personally. Not a surprise, Kev. Everybody everybody would expect that. If the uh, Nissan Onrogue DPI in the hands of the core autosport team all of a sudden perked up and started winning uh, you know, two races on the trot, we would probably expect to see the same exact bopped upside the head type maneuver by the series because that's what BOP that's is used to do. So... Will this end Mazda's glory? I don't know. Uh, I can say that of the changes, you know, we would look for the Cadillacs to be a little bit more uh, powerful in their competitive effort. They have been lacking top end for a while now. So at a place like Road America, which they had this weekend, Graham, if you don't have top speed, you don't have nothing. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out for sure. Um I'd be surprised if the Akers don't win this weekend. Next question. Let's go for Tiger Wizard from That's the SCR Reddit. Tiger Wizard. It's like, I don't know, Lion Fairy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> picking How did only you one know drive. my stripper name? How did you uh, know my stripper name? Mate, you think I'm not out there in the darkness sipping a bourbon? You're dreaming. You're dreaming. Impressive thong, by the way. Uh, picking only one driver from each current GTLM team, Corvette, Porsche, Ford, and BMW, assembled the strongest four-man driver lineup for a 24-hour race. We'd love to hear both Graham and Stephen's dream team. We're not going to hear it from Stephen. He'll be there sipping yeah, a cup of tea. I see how it is. I see how it is, man. Yeah, he's, he's, he's I gone step for away two for weeks. two weeks. I, was there some guy with a weird non-English accent that used to be on the show? I don't know, but no, never forget heard of that, Jack Wad. <laughs> I see how it is. All right, there. So what do you want to go? You want, how do you want to do this? You want to go for two and I'll go for two? I'm going to go for Corvette, and I'm going to say Garcia. The Spanish Superman. Yeah, all right. So if that's your first pick, okay, you've taken one of my top considerations off the board. Uh, hmm, where would I go? Where would I go? Huh. I, uh, God, I, hate, I love, I love hate questions like this because there are so few wrong answers. 
<laughs> I will. F- okay. For number two in the combined uh, Goodwin Pruitt Motorsports GTLM Goodyear Failure Enterprise Incorporated, I will go with Richard Westbrook. Ooh. Angry. Just he drives with oh, yeah. anger. He is, he is massively angry. And he's mouthy too. He's lippy. I just yep. love arguing with Westy. It's so much fun. <laughs> I'm going to go for a Porsche driver. And this one's a tough one because they have got some superstars there. Yeah, they've had, they've kind of sucked this year, though, in, in IMSA. I mean, you know, yeah. zero wins, no podiums. I, I almost forget they're there. <laughs> I'm going to go for... Hmm. It's a tough one. I'm staring at one who is, who is their Tell version this- of Westy. Well, it's Tandy, is that one? Um, or they've got or Lawrence Fantor, who's just playing nuts. Uh, but I'm going to go for Bamba. Yeah, that was actually my thought. I mean, Tandy, I guess is is the literal uh, direct equivalent of Westy. But I was going to say Bamba as well because while it's big smiles and he's so much fun and he's a Kiwi and who couldn't love a Kiwi, that guy gets nasty behind the wheel. So that's a great call. All right, so. All right, we got pick number four. How are we gonna how are we gonna close this out? So, we've chosen someone from Corvette Racing, Ford Chip Ganassi Racing, and the Porsche GT team. By the way, this maybe actually is a little bit of a hashtag breaking exclusive scoop, but don't hold me to it entirely because it always fluctuates and changes. But <clears throat> just before we started recording, uh, was on a phone call with someone who would absolutely no who says it would appear the post Le Mans we got to keep going we really really need to keep the uh, 4GT effort on track next year in IMSA uh, initiative being pushed from the highest levels of Ford uh, it would appear that might have come to an end so yeah so that bums me out Uh, but let's see so since we're not being democratic in our choices. We just have chosen uh, from three of the four full-time teams so far. I don't know if I should just automatically go to BMW team RLL, but I think I'd be dumb if I didn't. I love me some John Edwards. Mm. I, he, there's a question later about underrated drivers and oh, yeah. good old John Edwards is someone who, I believe I've mentioned before here on the show, Graham, we should be talking about John now celebrating his 10th season as an IndyCar driver. He's that good. Uh, I'm happy he has employment and long-term employment in sports cars, but his is the kind of talent that could be a a very, he should have 10, 15 IndyCar wins uh, to his credit by now. That's the kind of talent he has to play with. So I'll go with good old Johnny E. Okay, that's your four. Um, we've uh, uh, Randy Rando Magnum. That's another. That's a oh, stripper name. No, that's a porn name. That's not a stripper. That name. That's is, a porn absolutely. name. Um, goes down the road of will the twenty twenty uh, schedule be announced and uh, released uh, this weekend? I think uh, the answer to that one we've already come to. That would be Friday. Which, absolutely, which would be Friday. Um, then we get to Craig Johnson on Facebook. Hello, gents. I wouldn't go that far. This may be a completely biased question due to my close proximity and love for Road America. When it comes to determining the length of a race, 
who does that? Is it the series, the promoter, the track, all of the above? Love seeing the sports cars race about around Red America. I think it'd be awesome to see a four to six hour race there. Hashtag me personally. Hashtag me personally too, Craig. This is the think, one event, Graham, in yeah. North American sports car racing that on a regular basis, folks ask for it to be extended. I mean, I can't think of any other race, truly, where IMSA attend, that IMSA attends or will challenge Road America, IMSA. That combination is the one where, out of all of them, it's the only one where folks routinely say, come on, man, four-hour minimum, if not six. And there's precedent from the past. So uh, some folks might have grown up seeing that and loved it and want it back. But, yeah, it's the kind of place where you just don't want to leave. You want it to keep going on and on and on and on. So I totally get that. Coming back to your question, Craig, ultimately that is the series. Uh, That is the series that determines that they can't just simply mandate that or dictate that to the tracks. Every track obviously needs to agree. They own a number of the tracks they compete at each year, so that makes it easy. But when it comes to an independent entity like Road America, Graham, that is certainly something where IMSA and the track's leadership agree on the duration, but IMSA is also coming there saying, hey, <laughs> we're doing 10 rounds. We are doing four endurance races. Sebring is one. Daytona is another. Road Atlanta is another. And Watkins Glen is the fourth and final. There you go. So until the day where Watkins Glen falls off of the map or otherwise, Honestly, Craig, I I can't see it. I know I want to see it, but I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. Okay. Uh, Adam Van from USCR Reddit page says, so why is the Porsche camp constantly changing its driver lineups in GT2, a GTT rather, part place? FAF have had different driver pairings and on occasion even shared drivers such as Detroit. Now with Wright back for two races, they've got a drift, different driver lineup for both events with a swap between them and FAF, Ralston, Campbell. Am I missing something? Why is this happening? Adam, I would wind back to the opening question on IMSA, that being from Texan Dan on why does Audi seem to do so much better in series other than IMSA. This is a direct result of Porsche being massively engaged with its customer teams and making sure that if super high quality drivers are needed, that they are certainly made available. So if we look at FAF winning the last race, Scott Hargrove, who I rate in very highly, uh, was not in the car. Uh, we look at the definite involvement of young Mr. Olson helping the team to earn its first victory alongside Zachary Robichon. So, yeah, not a surprise here, but that's not a surprise because it's been Porsche's practice for a while, Graham, of, look, we've got a lot of really great drivers under contract. And, hey, trust me, if you need them, if you've got someone busy, you got whatever it is, we can make this happen as part of an incentive to be a part of our motorsports family. I'm not saying those drivers show up for free at them. <laughs> I'm not saying that they don't cost the teams money, but yeah, that to me is something where it, from the outside, it might look like a constant shuffling and inconsistency to me. I think it's a pretty amazing uh, value add 
the teams can tap into. And obviously, if we look at, again, how the most recent round went, it's a pretty darn smart thing on behalf of FAF. Um, Tovawek, Asms, Elmzako. I think that uh, switches the roles from me as the tormentor to me as well, what would you call it? Uh, it's the, it's obviously the font of your knowledge. Is Hormenter Well, maybe that. Maybe the font of as much knowledge as we have available this week, I think, would be the way i go for it. But that doesn't quite fit in a business card. All right. Well, we are roughly 30-ish minutes into the show. Yep. We are going to spend an additional 60 minutes getting through as many WEC, Aslam, Elms, ECHO questions, and also oh, general of- Lots of good general questions. Hegenerale and fun questions. So now we turn into me talk words out of my mouth to you. We're going to go with mm-hmm. a grumpy guy in a bear suit might be the best name ever on social media. Darus Lar, who says, what are the chances, Graham, of SMP reentering their BR1 chassis now that a very favorable, quote, EOT has been released? Yeah, I bet there's some people at uh, WC feeling pretty dumb about this one because um, uh, the answer, I think, is no. I think there are chances we will see uh, perhaps a couple of those cars very late this season, uh, but that might be quite interesting because that's going to require S&P Racing paying the fines for all of the races they don't appear at. So um, you're not allowed to enter by the rules uh, a one-off race. So either you pay the fines for all the races or you don't get to come out and play. And if they've withdrawn from the championship, they don't get to come out and play. Therefore, their only opportunity would be at Le Mans, effectively with a wild card. Uh, So the answer pretty firmly I've had is no. Uh, The fact that a couple of their drivers appeared testing the Chinettas at the Barcelona prologue tends to underline that. Um, So I think, unfortunately, the now fully matured and remarkably rapid BR1 I think as far as a full season is concerned or anything like a full season, that be done, uh, which, you know, that does leave the question open. Why on earth did the WC not see that coming and release the EOT that we've now had, which you're right, is a significant change earlier and save the possibility of a bigger LMP1 grid? Big, big miss. Yeah. At say Phil asks a very similar question too. I think Interestingly, Graham, while this has certainly played to a very unquestionable negative regarding SMP, which has been a very committed team slash sponsor, just entity in general, high investment in the WEC, we've definitely seen the WEC folks, I think, try and heavily embrace Janetta and with their LMP1 car. And I'm not saying that the heavy recent embrace of Janetta through promotions, whatever else has been in reaction to losing SMP just does stand out to me as odd that boy, you sure got the equivalent of a fart in church on how you handled uh, the performance stuff that led SMP to say, Nope, no, no, we're done. And yet with Janetta truly embracing, wanting to come back, working very hard to find a customer base, there's seemingly been the opposite reaction from the WEC of, hey, look, okay, they want to be here. Cool. Let's now shower a bit of favor on them. So just odd handling, for nonlinear handling for sure. Let's go to Dan Fly. Awesome name, by the way, Dan. I'm a fan of the Gibson engine. 
how much detail is available on how the contracts work, how they flow from factory to team to race, back to the factory for rebuild, track and event personnel support, lifespan, etc. Thanks for making so much information available to the average fans. So that closing sentence sure as heck sets us up to fail massively <laughs> on this one, and I'm so thankful you're answering this one and not me. Right. Well, okay. Tell, let me tell you, I'm, I'm taking it. We're talking about the Gibson 4.2 liter, the GK 4.428, uh, which oh, is you're the 4.2 liter. In numbers and letters. This is yes. really good. So GK 428, 4.2 liter, eight cylinder engine, which is, of course, the spec LMP2 motor for the LMP2 class. Uh, hey, there man, are some... I think he's on a Wikipedia page, but just we'll, no, we'll, we'll no, let him um, go. <laughs> um, there's about 30 LMP2 cars equipped with that uh, engine around the world uh, in LMS, in the WC, for that matter, in the uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, and later this year, of course, in Asia Le Mans for the first time. There are a pool of 50 five zero engines. That's all she wrote. That's uh, what we've got available for those 30. And the way it works is that you pay money for the mileage on those engines, mileage and hours, if you like, on those engines. So you buy in blocks of X kilometers uh, on those engines or on X hours on those engines. And it's then up to Gibson in concert with the team to determine whether or not you keep one engine for that contract or whether or not that engine is a point in its cycle that needs to go back to Repton in Derbyshire in the UK and be rebuilt. So you will always, against that contract, have uh, an engine well within the hours, uh, but it might be that you're buying basically time on two engines and that is swapped midway through that cycle so that is the way it works um the the, the contract that uh, gibson put together with the aco to service that uh work that one through you might remember that they increased the number of engines that they were going to build to accommodate what was at that time a burgeoning number of lmp2s as to how many more p2 cars could be added to the mix before that pool went up from 50 that is a good question, um, not one I'm uh, fully aware of, but I don't think it could be very many more than where we are if you think about the logistics involved, uh, and particularly when we get to Le Mans, where there are a remarkable number of spare engines, a very large proportion, by the way, of the available uh, Gibson LMB2 engines were at Le Mans this year with spares available for just about every team. And that was Gibson spokesperson, Graham Goodwin. Good <laughs> Lord. Someone did their homework. I love it. I love it. Let's go to Kevin Payne. He says, when Stephen K22, have no idea who that is, uh, interviewed Vanessa Bowmanil at the prologue, they referred to the 2020 regulations being published. Kevin says, I can't find them on the FIA website. Should I be looking somewhere else? Right. Two things to say is uh, when he says published, he basically means published to the uh, the people that des- uh, that absolutely need them. Uh, when he say when you say published on the FI website, they are slower than the slowest race car you can possibly imagine. Think Formula E on a kind of extension lead. It's that slow. So it can be days, weeks, months before we actually get to see uh, the regulations on the FIA website. But, uh, yep, I'm sure that the answer is that the 2020 regs uh, will be there and available to teams. As for 2021, dream on. We need to get you some JB80 from our sponsor, Justice Brothers. We hear the official DailySportsCar.com Weekend Sports Cars Chair. 
still uh, a I'm squeaky I've just, mess. I, oddly enough, I've just moved from the squeaky chair to the non-squeaky chair, but I then made the fatal error of using the squeaky chair as a footstool, and it was my feet on the squeaky chair. It's that kind of detail that uh, just, just completely evades me. We are going to spray your feet then with JB80 and make sure that they're properly Excellent. lubricated, and that's the last time we're going to mention Graham Goodwin and lubrication in any episode uh, this year. And my, and my feet. Yes. Kevin also asks, did the GTE Pro teams get to use the new Michelin rubber at the prologue? Yes, but to a very limited degree. Uh, initial information from a couple of them was that they would not have the Michelin rubber available to them at the prologue, but then they did have a very limited amount. But information on how they found it, but obviously they found it and the stack of tires were given by Michelin, but how they their experiences of it um, was very little uh, feedback on that. That I think is being kept very close to French chess right at the moment. Um, so yes, they had some, not a lot. That's to do with the production schedule for uh, Michelin. So we're going to see some interesting uh, developments, I think, when we get to Silverstone for the opening round of the season eight, which is the way we will be referring to them now, season eight of the FI World Endurance Championship. And fine French chests they are. Our good pal Right Turn Lover asks, can LMP1 EOT slash success penalties please only use weight and tank size aligned to per lap fuel allocation? He says, I would love to see the heavier and more fuel limited cars be able to present their disadvantage on the grid expressed in food and drink, which is then distributed to the fans. What do you think? You, you, You have some pull. And the WEC, Graham Goodwin, I think you got one here you have to make happen. I think that's right to another just wanting another Toblerone um, to to nibble on from the stands. Um, I'm a firm fan of a very visual and certainly an easy-to-explain methodology around balance of performance and EOT. On that front, I absolutely agree with you. It's something I've, I've tried to exert what pressure I can to make sure that when we get these changes, that is expressed clearly, and clearly as, uh, as why have you made the change and what difference do you expect it to make? Uh, I think that's perfectly sensible. I'd like to see that being adopted by more and more and more uh, race authorities would actually use balanced performance methods to regulate the race cars i think it would be good for uh, the audience to understand it more because at the moment you know being told that five or 10 or 15 kilos is an absolute disaster i'm just not having it is the honest answer we know roughly what kind of difference that will make and it isn't absolutely vast uh, so i think a little bit more education about balance of performance and eot would be a very good thing all round because it stops an awful lot of negative threads uh, from within the paddock and from outside the paddock so time i think that people we're gonna have it fine let's have it let's embrace it let's move forward on the basis that we've actually got a better level of information available to everybody concerned and everybody's interested i don't know if you heard that sound in the background it's me taking off my journalist cap and putting back on my old rusty dusty race engineer cap dear mr goodwin the addition of 15 10 15 kilos is indeed a massive difference maker in the context of endurance racing so if we're talking a 30 minute world challenge sprint race or similar 40 minute sprint race less so but when we're talking something that can add a tenth to two tenths uh, per second each lap spread over 
hours of motor racing, that is indeed a giant, giant uh, restriction. Uh, so while the number might not seem high and while the actual weight one can envision might not be that scary in a era where variances are so small between teams and manufacturers where every car shows up in such a high state of competitiveness. Believe it or not, we're now at a point where 10 or 15 kilos can be a surprising difference maker can also do things in terms of influencing negatively tire wear, chassis balance, etc., etc. So it's not just the carrying around extra weight, the car being heavier, therefore slower, but also some of the other knock-on effects that can certainly make the car not super happy. So that's your little public service announcement from Northern California. Let's go to our man, Nate Detweiler. And we answered this earlier this year, but hey, we like answering things multiple times sometimes. Recently, manufacturers like Ferrari and Aston Martin have built cars. Hold on, let me put my journalist cap back on. There we go. That have been used as GT3 or GTE. Have any teams actually converted cars between those specifications? Uh, I can think of one that most certainly has, um, but oddly enough, I've never raced it as a GT3 because uh, the W Ferrari that won at the Le Mans 24 Hours in GTM a couple of years ago was purchased as a GT3 car, therefore becomes the first ever GT3 car to win at Le Mans, albeit uh, not in GT3 specification. But oddly enough, that car... I don't believe has ever raced as GT3. So, yes, I'm sure that has actually happened. Uh, the other one that most certainly has, by the way, is the uh, test car for the GTE Aston Martin, was also the test car for the GT3 Aston Martin. And the team, after testing it as a GT3, as a GTE rather, converted it to GT3 spec, put it on the truck, sent it to VLN, and put the thing on pole. So uh, the answer is yes, that's been done. I love it. I love it. Where should we go next as we wind down somewhat quickly on Weck Aslam Elms Aco? All right. Time to fess up, Graham. How did the Algarve Pro Team find engineering one of the fastest race cars on the planet at the WC Prologue? They did great. I mean, they did great. Sam and Stu Cox. Stu Cox has something of a public persona coming from... Uh, his, how could we put this? His forthright uh, way of expressing himself uh, with the race team it came from the uh, the documentary, the BBC documentary that follows Chris Hoy to Le Mans and Stu made his name with a wider population uh, with with that. Uh, but I have to say, I love him to bits. He, you know, he doesn't suffer fools gladly but i have to tell you i thought they did a stunning job Algar pro were asked by the team lnt guys simply because they were there they had the kit they weren't staying on otherwise for uh the wc prologue and so they provided a lot of the pit equipment for team lnt at the uh, prologue and indeed engineered one of the cars managed one of the cars but uh you know the reality there was I think if um, I was Team LNT and Lawrence Tomlinson, I'd probably be listening to very carefully to the feedback they were getting from a highly professional team. But they did great. Team Lint, who wouldn't love them? We're going to go to Turbo 1028. How does the WC get GTE manufacturers, such as BMW and even Chevy, back into their series on a full-time basis? And do you think that's so a thing, Graham, getting them, quote, back 
Or do you think shifting to just finding new since they've chosen to leave and or in Chevy's case, have never been there full time, but just curious whether you think that trying to get your, get the old girlfriend or boyfriend back is the angle to take or to start looking for some new love. Don't see any evidence of them looking to get them back is the honest answer. Um, as for getting new blood, I think there's a few options and opportunities. We've talked about it before on Twisk, whether or not that would be trying to uh, aim GTE at some more boutique manufacturers that perhaps don't quite have the budget to do the hypercar routes. We've already heard that Brabham would like to take a look at that. Whether or not that happens is going to come down to David Brabham and his backers. Business case for not the BT62, but the next car, which we've heard very little, if anything at all. So let's wait and see. Beyond that, I think the only thing you can possibly can look towards is sex tapes. I think sex tapes of the team principals, that they can then be bribed into uh, coming to the WEC on the basis of otherwise being embarrassed by the public revelations of their more nefarious activities might be a successful um, opportunity uh, to deal with that. But without that, I'm afraid you're down to where the industry is going. So it's sex tapes or industry. The silence you hear is my brain trying to calibrate concepts of Jens Marquardt and Doug Feehan meeting up behind the garages at Le Mans. We're going to leave that right there. We're going to go to Grim Brother One. He says, one of my favorite things to watch in recent years has been the rise of the Lamborghini brand in proper motorsport. Definitely agree. Spent too much time in improper motorsport with several major milestones under their belt. What are the chances we might see them make serious attempts at overall success in either IMSA or the WC slash Le Mans? Do you think the VAG, that being Volkswagen Audi Group, would ever allow them the opportunity to truly challenge for overall wins and take proper steps in building a brand legacy even further? Uh, watch this space. I mean, I think you know as well, they were sniffing around IndyCar as well, were they not? Not so very long ago. Uh, Lamborghini as a brand has taken a very broad brush to their uh, examination of potential uh, potential motorsport programs. You know, in the recent past and indeed present, uh, think of a number. GTE has certainly been on their, uh, their uh, horizons. So too is Hypercar. So too is DPI. Uh, all sorts of things could and might happen uh, it's i think simply a matter of exactly where the the where the ball stops rolling in that roulette wheel at the point at which it's time to make a decision if you're asking me right now uh, i think any one of those is possible in terms of uh, the um whether or not it's possible that we'll go to gte whether or not it's possible to go to hypercar but the most likely if you ask me mp and you can tell me otherwise might well be an expansion of what happens in the united states and if you're going to do it do it with the overall there will however be one car before we hear about that i think the next thing we'll hear is going to be about gt2 and i cannot see that uh, lamborghini will stay out of the gt2 marketplace for very much longer and in fact there'll be something on dsc and i hope racer as well um, about the manufacturers that we know are looking like they're in the next tranche and at least one that people believe might be that isn't going to be so uh, Lamborghini's GT2 as part of the customer sports range uh, I think it's GT3 GTD and uh, the one make races but beyond that I'd be surprised if we didn't see something a bit more public about which way they're going to go in terms of their prototype aspirations word on the street Graham and I feel fairly confident about this 
is if choosing between prototype options, DPI 2.0 in 2022 in IMSA, or hypercar in the WEC, that Lamborghini would be choosing the good old United States of America yep. uh, to sense. play. It might, it- it makes sense, MP, for two reasons. It makes sense because it's a marketplace whilst they've got GTT customers and they've got Super Trofeo customers. They're not uh, competing for overall wins in races of uh, a profile, whereas in Europe and elsewhere, with the IGTC and with them looking to step up to that next uh, next season uh, with at least um, you know a, a, a factory-backed entry in RGTC plus the Spa 24 Hours, then they've got that opportunity to win with their brand on races that they can leverage. That makes perfect sense to me. I'm going to make the executive decision to boot us right into Hegenerau. We're going to go to General Excellent. Boys and Girls, and I'm going to throw yet another one at you. Please don't duck. This comes in from our good pal, Andrew Baca, the good old Baxter, who says, Nick Leventis, do you think his retirement is authentic or is it a bit, quote, you can't ban me, I quit. Uh, well, for those that don't know what this, this story is about, Nick's been a very silly boy. He was uh, caught, tested positive for a couple of absolutely banned substances at the Laguna Seca eight hours early this year. Um, and... Anabolic steroids, basically. My view <clears throat> has absolutely nothing to do with his racing whatsoever. I think it's to do with um, whatever it is to do with lifestyle, whether it's other extreme sports, whether or not it's just look, whatever it is, it's an incredibly stupid thing to do. He's not the first. He won't be the last. I sincerely hope he would be the last. Um, and I think the four-year ban that's come his way, number one, is completely righteous. And number two, I think the embarrassment that would come the way of him, of his family and of his company, um, is the reason why Nick has stepped down, and I think he's correct to do so. I sincerely hope that does not mean that we see any darling back from striker racing. That would be an awful way um, for what has been a championship-winning and big race-winning team uh, to meet its end. I've heard nothing that indicates that, that is the case. Uh, let's fig- keep our fingers crossed and hope that beyond the current season uh, that striker racing can remain. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's Nick Leventis basically saying uh, it's a fair cop. And actually this is too, too embarrassing now for me to continue and make a comeback in four years time. Best we call it game over. Got a couple questions here. One from our pal, right turn lover again. Uh, one here from, let's see, uh, Johnny Trotz, uh, Johnny Schultz about spot 24 and professional drivers and ignoring blue flags, uh, muppetry of full-course yellows, things being spoiled with safety cars, finding the leading car. Tell us about All this, sorts. Graham. Uh, for um, those who, like myself, who were busy actually doing mundane things like packing to move house uh, and did not read about it but did not witness it, what the hell went on, my man? <laughs> well, let's let's give you the context. So, record-breaking temperatures in Belgium. We saw forty-one degrees. I don't think it was a real-world forty-one degrees, but it wasn't so short of that. Uh, so, forty-one degrees on the on the race control tower thermometer um, to be broken, of course, race day. Because why wouldn't it? By torrential rain at times. That meant a fairly large number of on-track incidents. They uh, were then punctuated by full-course yellows, quite often working their way into safety cars before the, the um, 
uh, the cars were let go. And yes, indeed, there are a couple of instances where cars were ignoring blue flags or not blue flags were not being shown, which held up leading cars or leading groups, etc., etc. Um, I I don't want to criticise the way in which races like that are um, are governed from race control. I wouldn't want that job. Uh, I thought for the most part they kept it safe, which is frankly all that matters about a way in which you bring these things under control. I thought the red flag for six hours uh, for the rain was absolutely uh, well deployed. I was not awake, I have to tell you, when it red flag came out, but everybody that I spoke to and the footage I've seen seems to indicate, if anything, it probably should have flown a little earlier. And then we can all be critical about how long it takes to get back to green flag running, but the reality was that what we didn't see was multiple cars skating off uh, when racing resumed. So thank God for that. We didn't have um, major, major incidents directly as a cause of weather. We did have a couple of major incidents. I've been reasonably sharply critical of the number of cars that uh, uh, we had this year. 72, I think, started the race. Uh, I think that had a part to play at times with pretty heavy traffic and some incidents that came around there. That in itself, by the way, leads itself to these issues of blue flags because you've got cars of more or less identical performance. Um, Again, I've said as much as I want to say in terms of the fact that I'm not a massive fan of the way in which the pit stop cycles have been overly regulated. Uh, there's more people irritated by that in the uh, the garages and the pit lane, the paddock, than find it you know a nothing. Um, and for me, sadly, that might well be the last time I go to that race for quite some time. I just didn't enjoy it. Um, it, it felt actually MP more like a Rolex 24 hours at Daytona than it did a Spa 24 hours. And by that, I mean that there's an overarching need to be on the lead lap at a particular time in the race um, and not before. And that takes away just a little something. Um, I thought it was very professionally marshaled. It was very professionally uh, uh, governed, but I thought there was there were difficulties that were... Uh, they were handed the way of race control simply because of the weight, the number of cars that are actually out there. Oh, and by the way, before we get into it, because I'm sure there's a question somewhere, yes, the balance of performance of the Bentleys was absolute bullshit. Uh, At no point did they look anything close to being able to get onto terms with the leading 20 or so cars. And there's got to be something wrong when you've got a major mark like that putting in four car entry and there is just no pace. Uh, That was wrong. Yeah, idiots. Um, (laughs) Let's go to Mark Usher, who asks, just like to know your thoughts on the revival of GT2 and now apparently the revival of GT1. Right. Okay. Well, let's deal with GT1 first. This came my way in a conversation with a couple of team owners down in the paddock. Oh, have you heard? We're going to get GT1 coming back, sit above GT2 um, only. Not quite. So what the GT1 is, is it's basically um, a some something of an expansion of something that already exists. Effectively, it's the hypercar club. This is owners of the real top-end hypercar road cars having the opportunity to come and be entertained, 
perhaps show off a little, maybe a little bit of competitive lappery, whether that's like a time attack or whether or not that's a no-contact race. But the reality is that ain't GT1 by anybody's reckoning. That is LaFerraris, that is 918 Spiders going out there. And, you know, there's a place for that. We'd all like to see those cars out there, and if there's a possibility of seeing them driven quickly, yes, but they will not be racing. GT2 is something altogether different, and that uh, project is beginning to crystallize now. And what that means is that it will become uh, the AM uh, class uh, iteration for uh, SRO's global platform. So the first way in which we'll be seen, there's been some changes in the way that we'll be seen. We're not going to see a, a GT2 class, for instance, the British GT Championship, which is originally uh, slated for. Instead, it will go into the Blompan Sports Club. What is that, you may ask? Uh, well, that sits below what used to be the Blompan Endurance Blompan Sprint Series in Europe and is effectively for... Uh, amateur-only um, ranked drivers. At this point, it's had a real mix of new and old GT3 cars in it. GT2 cars will be coming there. They'll also be coming to new sports club uh, products to support uh, the SRO race packages both in North America and in Asia. So the Blompan Sports Club, or whatever it's going to be called, the sports club, because Blompan has not yet, by the way, signed its full-year deal for 2020 with uh, SRO. That will be a product you start to start to see on the bill with uh, well either Blompen, uh, the World Challenge Asia or World Challenge North America. Uh, you'll start to see some GT2 cars there. We've already seen the Porsches. They had their first two races as a one-mate race at Spa. I was privileged to be able to be handed a mic for those two races. Uh, we've seen the Audi. The Lisa Test car will feature in another demonstration race at Barcelona later this year. Uh, we are told at Barcelona there will be another manufacturer announced and that there are lengthy conversations. There are you know t- conversations leading to potential uh, product hitting the track with three other manufacturers for next year. I'm going to do my best to unpick exactly what that is in an article I intend to share uh, with racing dailysports.com either later today or tomorrow good man well i think the next question might be one that you would foist my way oh what's that oh thoughts on the igtc event announced for indianapolis so that you know this what this one's about this is the end of the race at laguna seca which had its uh two downs and one up uh ryan terpstra asks what's your thoughts on igtc coming to indy mp if you are a fan of the IGTC and have always wanted to see those cars participate on the Indianapolis Motorway Motor Speedway Road Course, please go to the inaugural event. Because I put good money that if you wait to see the return of the IGTC for year two, you might be standing there by yourself in silence as no race cars go around the circuit. Um it's not going to last unless the IGTC want to spend money, unless there is money being spent and the circuit is being paid simply to host the event year after year. It will generate no crowd. It will generate no interest. It's going to be a non-event. I wish the opposite was true. I just know that with an American product that was by comparison, very well known 
being Grand Am, no one turned up to the brickyard to watch sporty cars go around. It just, it's a non-entity in central Indiana. Could there, will there be some diehards? Of course. But we are talking if, if they sell more than 2,000 tickets for the event, Graham, I will be shocked. Not going to say I'm going to eat my hat or otherwise, but it's just, it's not going to happen. So I'm happy for the folks who want to compete there. Happier for the folks who really want to see those cars there. It's just, it's not a market that's going to work. If it was going to work, it would have worked here in the greater San Francisco Bay Area at Laguna Seca. It didn't. So, again, love the idea. I'm happy for the circuit that they are being paid to host a motor racing event. Make no mistake, this is not the Indianapolis Motor Speedway paying to have the IGTC. Uh, so I'm happy that Indy is being rented for a sports car race. Just not a venue that is going to draw a crowd. If this were Graham Mid-Ohio, I think we would be having a different conversation. I oh, think that they're, and that's a four-hour drive, I think. Four, three and a half or so hour drive last time I did it. It's not that far away, but if you were to go three and a half, four hours east to Mid-Ohio, I think you might actually draw a decent crowd, but... Not at the home of the Indianapolis 500, unfortunately. Let me see. What else can I grab? I was going to say on you, but just you say, should say by the way. Should say by the way, Jamie and Peach and others have also asked similar questions. You've answered those beautifully already. Uh, it's one of the uh, prevailing questions this week, together with all sorts of other questions about Spa and GT2. And by the way, Johnny Schultz said, "No, I don't believe that it'll be Ferrari." That uh, Jenna Exclusive casually mentioned the third GT2 manufacturer will be Ferrari. Can I confirm that? No, I don't. I've got four manufacturers in mind, and Ferrari on on that list at the moment. Let's see. I'm trying to think of, of some other generals we should grab before closing out with fun because we've got lots of generals. Nice one, nice one here by Neil Hardy, by the way. If climate change doom-mongers are right, uh, extreme weather events are becoming more common. Well, I can tell you from my experience this year racing, they're down. They absolutely got it straight. I've been to one um, circuit twice this season, that being Spa. We've had snow, hail, high winds, Extreme temperatures approaching 40 degrees and then torrential rain. Yeah, extreme weather events. Uh, so, but the question is, um, what can endurance racing do to protect itself more against more disruption from extreme heat, torrential rain or snow in May? Um, I can't really, I mean, well, I wouldn't apply this to endurance racing because it's, although it might feel like it at times, it's not a form of sport that in particular gets attacked by uh, adverse weather, but it is, it's a brilliant question. Uh, there's, <laughs> I, there's no such thing to me as uh, climate denier. Well, they do exist, but there's no such reality as denying reality. Uh, if temperatures are being shown to rise and we are seeing some of the knock on effects of that, then it is certainly a thing. It's just an evolution, regardless of whether it's man-made or not. Again, none of this. It's, I also love the fact, little 10-second rant, bring up something like climate change and folks start talking about politics. Oh, I don't want to talk politics. It's not politics. 
It's science. Science. Um, we are dealing, though, it would appear, Graham, with more extreme events, just stupid heat at times where you go, okay, it's normally hot, but boy, it's really hot. Or why is rain or snow falling in my head this at this time of the year when it doesn't happen? It does seem like that's been more of a thing uh, in recent years. I don't honestly have a great answer other than if that becomes a trend on the engineering side, obviously the folks that name all the various tire brands would be looking at year-to-year data in seeing that, uh uh-huh, boy, if we go to this track at this time traditionally uh, in this month each year and we're looking at the ambient and it is indeed increasing year by year, then I'm sure that would change Neil, in terms of tire compound and construction to try and combat such things. I don't know if any major changes would need to happen on the wet side in terms of rains. I mean, most tire brands have a pretty solid understanding as to how to make really excellent tires that either handle intermediate, you know, semi-rain, but not crazy, all the way to really crazy monsoon-style stuff. So that, to me, is really the only major thing that stands out. If we are seeing, though, Graham the likelihood of hotter events being more prevalent. I would say that could potentially be something where manufacturers, if we're talking sports car racing specifically, and so many vehicles that are homologated, could that lead to some manufacturers looking to redesign bodywork, change the sizing on oil and water radiators and such from a cooling standpoint? I mean, these are just some of the practical things that come to mind on if it's going to be if this is a trend we're heading in and it's only getting quote worse there would absolutely be some things that would have to change to adapt in the event of that being a more frequent reality well well here's here's one uh, it just just occurs to me you might remember from cota a couple of year a couple of three years ago mp with a company that aston martin racing had a uh, partnership with for a short while where they had these very thin solar panels yeah. on the roof of yep. the car that that could be something whereby that helps in terms of the driver cooling for instance if you need it it kicks in when you've got the need for it and you know with the way that solar panels uh development has actually gone the the, the weight penalty of that now is remarkably less than it used to be so lots of things that could come into it i think might well come into it because it it certainly is a challenge with this one we are seeing more and more races interrupted for much longer uh now for extreme weather um you know heavy rain and um, of that matter when we get to extreme heat that causes major problems uh in terms of the the physical demands on drivers and for that matter the rest of the crews uh in an endurance race so let's watch this space for it i agree with you completely by the way not politics science and reality let's blinded us with politics no that was the song um would also just say graham that could there also be a market for somewhat altered racing seats that are not only waterproof but somewhat bathtub-esque right the heck with cool suits and air conditioning you know let's throw some ice and a couple gallons of water into the seat and just let the driver kind of sit there in a little you know have his little swim floaties on you know or her little swim floaties on just trying to think of ways we can combat things and throwing the stupid ideas that fall into my head as ideas, all right. Where uh, where else should we go, my friend? In general, uh, 
McLaren GT3 sales strategy from uh, Justin at uh, JTruck71 on Twitter with zero cars at Spa 24, zero cars in the Blanc Pan European Series, and only one impartial IMSA season. Does anyone understand McLaren's strategy for the 720S? Seems like the best way to sell them would be visible and competitive. Is it McLaren's lack of support for customer teams? It's a brand new car, I think is what we need to say there. Um actually uh, bumped into a very senior member of, uh, of McLaren customer racing at Spa very briefly. They don't seem terribly, terribly concerned. I do expect it to be a high-profile entry for McLaren into uh, Blompan next year. I'd be quite surprised if we didn't see rather more of those cars around. have had some bad news that we've lost the two cars that would have taken part in the Suzuka 10 hours with Kazumichi Go's uh, McLaren uh, Customer Racing Japan team pulling out. But I think there's some growing pains with that organization. Remember, this is you know a nascent um, organization after the unpleasantness between the previous McLaren GT operation, the CRS run operation, taking that back in-house. Lots of cars have been built over 100 gt4 570s cars have been built and certainly into double figures for the gt3 cars and it's going to take some time some effort some investment to provide the level of support that means that you can build the confidence of people in those cars they're not without success they are doing pretty well in some of the championships that we see them in um it may not always be the ones that you've got your focus on british gt has got a car three and race winning form in the international gt open in europe um, should have been two we will have one in Suzuka one in Blompan Asia one in the Australian GT Championship but remember this is customer racing and before you can start to really invest in putting factory money behind it you've got to have an income stream to do that with and that might just be the growing pains they're going through definitely wonder Graham if McLaren is in need making bigger overtures in sports car racing with the new model, uh, owing to everything you mentioned as well, with a bit of personnel change. And you know, there's been been things in a very general sense that I would say if I was a potential customer looking at the landscape, obviously know that McLaren has had great success, has had their models well represented. Uh, not this year, obviously, as, as we've just covered, but they have had a significant role in customer-based GT racing. Just wonder, though, if a lot of the, I don't know if I should say wandering eye, but we're in Formula One, we're also looking at IndyCar. Hey, hypercar could be a thing. Hey, speedboat racing, who knows? Part of me wonders if, in a very specific market where folks in sports car racing, specifically GT customer-based competition, folks are really looking for a manufacturer that is going to come across as fully embedded, fully invested. Sure, we might do other things, but guess what? You are our hardcore focus. I wonder if there's a feeling that that has waned. Therefore, we're seeing the lack of uptake on the new things that are happening here model-wise, and also whether the brand would be smart to come up with some sort of, of winning the hearts and minds and securing any feelings within the global customer GT audience that, nope, we're here, we're all about you, who cares what else we're doing, we're 100% focused on you. 
Well, they'll surely know the answer to that, MP. They'll surely know the answer to that. That will be coming back to them, believe me, very directly indeed, face-to-face. And they do do an awful lot of face-to-face. I see the same top brass that I see from McLaren um, at Spa all over the world, you know, bumping into all sorts of paddocks as they look into all sorts of potential uh, customer programs and factory programs. So by now they'll know the answer to that question and they'll know therefore where they've got to invest invest their time their personnel and therefore their uh, their financial resource their choice now uh, if there are crises if there are challenges they've got to ra- uh, rise to that or suffer the market consequences take one more here from general then we will close the show with 10 or 15 minutes of fun this comes in from kiwi chris who says some nice things about having me back thank you sir says question I've always wondered how TV commentators deal with race interruptions. Graham, you've had to do it at Spa and Fuji with the WEC. The comms team had to do it this past weekend. Is there a list of pre-prepared topics you work through, or do you just wing it? Should we uh, should we reveal the randomness here, or should we play it off? Like, oh boy, <laughs> months of research for topics to oh, draw from. yeah I, I bring a ring binder with me every every time it's 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 carefully scripted um i'm only allowed to say the same phrase in response to martin haven's regular rants uh, alan mcnish will normally just you know uh take about an hour off and go and eat repeated tonics tea cakes in the uh, the back of the the booth while we struggle month no of course it, it genuinely you you come back and you you draw on your knowledge you draw on uh, your ability to hold a conversation together. Of course, if it's one of the races where we are allowed, permitted to interact with fans via uh, the various means that we do with Twisk, then we'll do that. And, you know, that's certainly been kind of prevalent before. I thought the guys that were on overnight, Martin Haven again, oddly enough, Ryan uh, Moran actually making his uh, European debut in pit lane in very challenging conditions, did a brilliant job in making uh, in tracking down uh, whoever was still awake um, while we were under that six hours of red flag. It, it's tough, but actually... If you enjoy the company of the people you work with, and I'm lucky enough for the most part that I do, um, that it's not that tough. Uh, I think you're going to see some changes as things are going to move forward, certainly in terms of the way the WEC presents itself in those kind of circumstances, should they come again. I think you are going to find that there's going to be rather more um, signposted talking points. You know, in other words, here are the major points coming into this race and through this race. We'll be, I think, better prepared. There was some great stuff that came out of the broadcast at Le Mans with the, the wider team we actually had there. And there's some, been some lessons learned. And in fact, I'm doing some work on some of that storyboarding right now. Not to say we won't be talking about what you're seeing and what we expect you're going to see, but we're hoping to add a little bit more structure about it. But as for Red Flag, uh, absolutely, that is Generally speaking, you wing it because you, we don't know any more than you do how long it's going to be. It might be 15 minutes. It might be 15 hours. And, yeah, six hours uh, for the bar 24 hours, uh, that's a big challenge. That's a big challenge to fill, particularly in the middle of the night. Another thing to hear, Chris, is you also have your producers in your ear that might be suggesting things. Uh, not necessarily here's something to talk about, but, hey, by the way, two years ago, uh, we had a similar red flag for a thing. You guys might touch on that. Another thing that would happen as well is you could either have a producer say, hey, we're going to pull. We have a package ready to show or to talk about. Or you might say, hey, uh, while we're down here for a little while, 
uh, maybe we can pull up a graphic that says this, or here's some other topic that I want to hit. Can someone go find that and pull that to run? But the real answer here, Chris, as Graham mentioned, a lot of it's just pulling stuff out of your backside. And again, that's kind of the essence of what we do. That, that'd be a great business card. Marshall Pruitt, I pull things out of my backside. Uh, what we do often is just try and take experience and opinions and use them, shape them somehow, both when the action is happening and off, uh, when we're under yellow, red, or whatever it might be. And the last thing that comes to mind, just to add here, Graham, is chemistry. It gets hard when you step into a booth with people you don't know and you finally oh, yeah. have to wing it oh, for a yeah. while. But it certainly helps when you walk in with the lovingly insane Martin Haven and the very particular <laughs> and highly comedic Alan McNish. It's going to be fun. to my, If anything, you're kind of hoping for a red flag to see what you, the, you, you crazies come up with. So, yeah. It's really easy when you walk in and know the people, and especially if you have either some shared history or you've been in the sport together for a while, even not if you don't know one another, at least you can draw back to a point in time or something. just makes life a lot easier. So at least as I've found, those tend to be the broadcast teams that you remember and love because they do some really fun stuff. So, all right, we're going to go to fun, and we're actually going to go to fun and use the last question that had been separated into Ooh. general as the start of fun. Oh, this comes I from agree. Bonnie last 47. Hey, Bonnie During one of the ordinary F1 subreddits pissing matches, one of the ah. participants claimed F1 drivers are the most intelligent of all athletes. <laughs> this, is oh, yeah. this has yeah. me wondering if motorsport drivers are particularly intelligent among athletes. Oh, I'm biting my tongue so hard. Uh, let's see, Bonnie. I can tell you this uh, from the American side, at least. There's not always an expectation of intelligence, critical thinking, world awareness, etc., etc., with motor racing drivers, uh, mechanics, uh, you name it. And I've been a mechanic who is a bit of a Luddite as well. The drivers that I tend to enjoy the most often are ones who look up from the steering wheel and see the world around them and absorb some of it so they can do more than just talk about race cars. But I would say having played many sports growing up and knowing a lot of people who are very good athletes I would not paint Formula One drivers as the most intelligent of all athletes, much less the most intelligent among motor racing drivers. Not by yeah. any stretch. I would probably, and this is perfect for the show, probably hand that off to the general world of sports car racing, owing to the fact that, since it is often a pro-am dynamic, many of the AMs, are businessmen or women have higher forms of education, things that would allow them to be successful in life to therefore play. Obviously there are some who are members of the lucky sperm club who get to spend money that their mothers or fathers made or inherited. But I would just say by the numbers, there are more folks who are, whether it's a neurosurgeon, someone who started some major business and that's thrived and such. We're going to have more of those people driving sports cars than any other form of racing I can think of. So I think our little world here would happen to win that argument among drivers 
What says you, Mr. Goodwin? Um, it's a hilarious question <laughs> for starters. Um, yeah, I think that the, the, let, let's let's kind of hold the candle for um, our part of the sport. I think there is a reality that in um, sports car racing, endurance racing, you are managing more parameters very often than perhaps a single-seater driver, an F1 driver is, including not being selfish. Um, that's a you know massive intellectual challenge as to how do you compromise in that way. It's a great example, by the way, for uh, politics at the moment, the power of compromise and the, the benefits of compromise. Um, are race drivers more intelligent than other athletes? Well, I've had a bit of good fortune to meet a fair number of athletes in other sports through previous uh, professional careers. And I think there's there's good and bad in all of it. They, what, one of the ones that, when you read these questions, sometimes individuals come to mind. The individual that came to mind when I was thinking about this one is a guy who actually raced at the weekend and has done quite a bit of racing since his main career finished. That's Chris Hoy, uh, one of our most successful Olympic athletes, uh, massively accomplished cyclist. Um, when, when Chris started racing after his Olympic career finished. His thighs were 27 inches, each of them. His first race car had to be redesigned to fit his legs in it. But what I'd say about Chris is um, intellectual, well, not in the, the traditional form, but certainly a thinker, certainly someone who's actually got it going on in terms of being able to think his way through a technical uh, psychological problem and deliver on that. And that's what I find impressive is that people can achieve in more than one area of life. And quite often, certainly some of the guys, maybe not the very top end of Formula One, they're where they wanted to be for the whole of their adult life. They're exactly where they want to be. To get there, sometimes they've had to kick and scrape and grind away um, at whatever the challenge is to get there. And that's admirable if it's not just money that's handed to them. But it doesn't make them intelligent. It doesn't make them a towering intellect. For me, the ones that are impressive are the ones that are successful in more than one area of life. That doesn't have to be sporting achievements and business acumen. It can be actually shown that they get it, that there are other things in life to athletic achievements and gathering uh, you know, cubic yards, yardage of money. They're the ones I find are the more impressive individuals. Yeah, dummies. Yeah. I think uh, folks have said that to me many times. All right, where should we go in our in the ten minutes or so we're going to grant ourselves for additional fun? Uh, let's go with let's go with Ryan Terpster's, uh question here. The quick one: Which Top Gear presenter would you be for anyone on the podcast this week, including new presenters this year? If you're a Top Gear presenter, which one would you be, Marshall Pruitt? <sighs> I fear I'd be James May. I Me really as well. fear I'd be James May. Granted, my hair's fallen off the top of my head pretty quickly, so I might need a yeah. wig, but yeah, I fear I might I, be I, him. I, I will tell you right now, Ryan, I'm not a massive fan of where that went with um, the the three idiots, as I would normally refer to them as, but I, I feel that's unfair on James May. I think he's actually a very, very good broadcaster. Um, and the way... <laughs> And the way that I would, uh, the way that I would actually account for it is this: if you look at the three of them, all three of them have done other broadcasting. And actually, Jeremy Clarkson was certainly capable before his ego 
reached the towering size that it now is, capable of holding together a very good broadcast by himself. James May's programmes, generally speaking, are very watchable by quite a wide, wide audience. Richard Hammond, by contrast, is crap. End of. So which one are you? James May. <laughs> All right. Well, look at that. <laughs> Well, if nothing else, the hairstyle. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, let's go to James Counter, who says, what's your favorite Wolfgang Ulrich memory or Ooh. story? And also says, great to have you back, MP. Thank you, James. Uh, favorite memory, without a shadow of a doubt, was what happened in the moments after Peugeot's win in 2009. And what happened, and we saw that live on camera, with within seconds of that actually happening, is of course, wild scenes in the Peugeot garage, was that uh, Wolfgang led the entire senior staff down from uh, Audi Team Yoast to stand in the garage doorway and simply applaud. And I thought that was the sign of a man and a team very comfortable with their place in the racing world at that stage. And there's lots of stories about Wolfgang. He's an astonishingly good company. Uh, some extraordinary stories from his past that he's, he's passed on privately over dinner a couple of times when I've had that privilege. I can leave those ones to come in his book because if he doesn't write one, He's a fool. If you're listening, Wolfgang, write the book because it's brilliant. Um, but yeah, I just think he's a man of true class. And I thought that moment for me just defined where they were at that stage. Has he made mistakes? Has he done dumbass things? Of course he has as a human being. You know, the um, push him off incident with DTM, etc. Forget it. Uh, I'd rather look at the, at the mark of the man, which is the way that he behaved uh, when the race that they might at that stage MP have regarded as their own was finally taken away from them by their greatest competitors at the time by Peugeot. And the way he responded there, I thought was absolutely top notch. So since you've handled the Wolfgang Ulrich memory, I will throw in the unasked uh, Ulrich Beretsky memory, uh, Wolfgang's counterpart at Audi sport on the engine side. <laughs> and Many favorite memories there. The most lasting one, though, was from the Silverstone WEC race in 2015. And the little cottage-style hotel that I was staying in happened to be the same that many of Audi's senior brass were staying in. And so by chance, I think the two of us got back at roughly the same time and went straight down to the uh, in-hotel pub uh, to grab some dinner and uh, he sat down in this table next to me about two minutes after I sat down I said come on come have a seat you know sit down let's have dinner together and he said yes but we don't talk motor racing and I said do you think I really want to sit here and talk to you about motor racing after spending 12 hours at the track so my favorite memory uh, from that Graham and James was learning that Mr. Bretsky and his wife routinely spend one week a year on vacation at a monastery where they do not speak, nor do any of the, I don't know whether we should call them monks, whatever it is, but the entire monastery is silent. And they go and spend a week there in silence with them. And it's a week of complete contemplation not a word uttered, not just during the day, in and among others who are there doing the same thing, but even at night in private. I thought that was fascinating. For someone who's 
career is based on creativity, thoughts, ideas, uh, adventurous ways of making power, uh, whether it's fuel, (laughs) whether it is just imagine all the things involved with being one of the world's premier manufacturers of horsepower. I thought it was fascinating that instead of trying to go to some sort of, you know, art institute and here's ways to further open your mind and horizons and all kinds of creative juices, his place, his center was actually going or is once a year going to a place where everything gets small. And I would imagine as a result, that's the way he has found to indeed expand thoughts and ideas, not through an abundance of external inputs, but the exact opposite. It's just fascinating to listen to him explain it. Wow. I mean, I'm just making a quick note to self. Must book monastery break for soon-to-be 16-year-old daughter. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating. um, The the story, by the way, that I wish I could tell, but I won't, is um, the accident where Wolfgang Ulrich almost lost his leg. Uh, But I won't tell that one. It's for Wolfgang to tell it, as and when he decides to. Um, Right. uh, How long we got? Uh, well, let's say five more minutes. Two more questions. How's right. that? Let, let's go for it. So in which case, let's go for James Counter. I Bobby see Onser. one here that it, it ticks the, the mandatory aspect of every Weekend Sports Cars episode. Uh, Bobby Onser versus Christoph Bouchou. Who wins? Who curses the most? So uh, who wins the race? I don't know, Bobby Onser. You can tell me. Christoph was quick in his day, you know. Bobby Unser, every time. Because, A, he'd be cheating massively. Um, Excellent. Oh, come on. Yes, he'd be cheating. uh, Very likely to drive you off the course even more than Christoph Bouchou. So, Bobby Unser, I guess Bouchou doesn't really tick the cheating box, but the driving like a complete a-hole, in complete oblivion, uh, pretending as if you don't exist, Bobby, Uncle Bobby was the original Bushu. If anything, Bushu is playing from the Uncle Bobby playbook. Um, Uncle Bobby does not have or own a hammer emporium like Christoph Bushu no. happens to do. Uh, but yeah, Uncle Bobby, um, boy, you want to talk about someone who set the standard for this is an organized motor race. There are many vehicles in it. None of them more important than mine. None of them with a greater ability to finish first and if you recognize that and fall in line behind me you'll have a wonderful day with the possibility of finishing as high as second and if you don't you you might be introduced to the safety crew and barriers and all kinds of things which you've never met before as for who curses the most uh, in fairness, in fairness, I've not heard very much that way from uh, from Christoph. Christoph is the opposite of a regular race driver. Christoph, most race drivers get the hammer down. Christoph picks it up. Very true. And but the the closing question here from James: Who curses the most? There's actually a secondary component to it. So, Ooh. Bobby, well, well, possibly three. You and I do not speak French. Uh, fluently or enough to grasp all curse words so indeed bushu could be cursing a lot and we wouldn't necessarily know it uh but i can say for sure having spent many many unforgettable hours of my life in the presence of uncle bobby or on the phone with uncle bobby his command 
of the English language and the curse words that add nothing but flavor to it without parallel. So he certainly wins that. Now, Excellent. there's the final component, the unasked part here. Who is cursed at the most by fellow Ooh, drivers? No. We know who that person is. That is Christoph yes. Bouchou. That is what makes the man a legend. A Le Mans winner? Eh, who cares? The driver hated by more of his colleagues? The most hated driver among drivers who was cursed at by his competitors? Definitely Christoph Bouchou wins that award. Excellent stuff. Beautiful question. It's it's nice. We could all be drawn together in the same positive way. Well, um, we've got two questions left, and I need to pose one of them to you. You know, go. there's two left. Let's do both of them because I like the last one too. Josh Ridgen, who says, are there any drivers that are considered divas? And who is considered <laughs> to be the biggest diva of the lot? Should we reveal it's Andy Lally? I mean, just Lally. I tell you. No. Uh, who would you say? Who's the biggest diva? Well, and also, um, where, how close is your closest hospital? Well, because we might this, need to prepare this, them for your arrival. This, this what you'll see if, if you ever see Montoya without his race on, you'll notice his immaculately coiffured chest hair. And it'll always part that to the left, uh, which I think is always quite stylish. Uh, divas. Blimey. Great question. You know who you know I'd what? throw in here who shocked me? Go on. Lucas Lure. Oh, really? Yeah. He 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 had a tendency to feel himself. He he <laughs> at least as we as we refer to it in sports here in the US, it's called big timing, right? The guy who feels himself yep. a little too much, a little too important. Big times you a little bit. Hey, you know, I'm a big star, you're a little thing here. Get away, flee. Um yeah, lure. I saw that crop up in lure from time to time, and I'm like, wow. I realize that you are, or maybe back then, I don't know if it's changed hands, but the winningest driver in American Le Mans series history. And you've, you know, again, amazing driver. But do you really think folks here in name this, the whatever, folks in Wisconsin at the Road America yeah. LMS race? are just going to be fawning over the presence of Lucas freaking lure. Do you think folks even know who you are? I mean, they might, but the chances are they probably don't. And yet you're bringing that kind of, Hey, have I ever told you how great I am kind of way of being? Yeah. So yeah, lure surprised me. He was super cool at times as well, but there was that thing that come out. We're like, here we go, buddy. Okay. How about you? Who's uh, who's your leading candidate? Jacques Villeneuve. Wow! Jacques Villeneuve in sports cars. He was a pig. <laughs> he was awful. Uh, really, it didn't last long, and with good reason. But uh, he had a bucket of attitude. A bucket of attitude um, when he came to drive uh, in LMP1. An absolute bucket of it. Um, so, didn't enjoy him. Didn't enjoy Frank Montani for the same game. I, I, I'm not really sure now, to be honest Sorry, with you, Frank. I had not, my nose. I had to clear there. That's, yeah, well, I'm not sure whether or not the Frank Montani bit was uh, was attitude or basically the uh, result of overindulgence in white powder now. But the reality was, he was pretty unpleasant to deal with and had a bit of an attitude around him as well. And actually, of the current guys... Not so much a diva, just a bit of an attitude. Stand up, Jean-Luc Vern. Don't know him. 
don't really, I mean, I, I've interviewed him once or twice, but I don't know yeah, him enough be, to have, uh, to have, wow. I, I guess the thing with Jean-Eric is this, he can be remarkably pleasant, remarkably pleasant, but quite often isn't, which means it's elective. And that's the bit I don't like is you're choosing to be unpleasant. I know that when I covered my first, or I think it was the first Gold Coast 600 V8 supercars race where they invited international motor racing stars to pair with uh, the best V8 drivers. One of the first stories I wrote was just a reaction piece to Villeneuve and how many of the V8 drivers were just slagging him off for the exact thing. Like it was his first day in one of the cars. And already I was hearing from multiple V8 drivers like, oh, this guy's just a twat. Like, what is, you know, this guy is the worst. What the hell's wrong with him? So, yeah, definitely saw that, which is weird because with his coming over to the U.S., I think it was 92, where he ran in Italian Formula 3, came over and started running in the Formula Atlantic that his father uh, used to such great effect uh, in 93. And saw him there, watched him there, was working with a rival team in the Atlantic Series, and I think again through 94. No, I think he moved to IndyCar in 94. But regardless, while he was a little bit aloof in 93, he was certainly approachable. I had a couple of conversations mm-hmm. with him just as a, a one of our mechanics was French-Canadian and I think knew him a bit. So three of us would occasionally just chat or whatever. And like I said, definitely a little something there, but it wasn't bad. But to your point, whatever it was, it certainly took off uh, and went to pretty unhappy places afterwards. Speaking of afterwards, we're almost at the afterwards of the show. Mm. And that's because we have one question to go coming in from Damien Peachman. And Damien, I've taken a week or two off here, so I don't know if you sent something in while I was not uh, tending to the show. But I'm curious if this might be your first question. And if so, thank you for sending it in. It says, Marshall, what IMSA team... Would you like to do a one-off Itasha livery? And Graham, what mm. WC or ELMS team would you like to do a one-off Itasha livery? And of course, an Itasha so, livery is one that uses anime-style cartoons and characters and whatnot on so it. And I say that because everybody knows that. And or I looked it up last night because I didn't know what the hell it was and I didn't want to well, sound like a total uh, idiot. Th- this this comes on the back of the three-car uh, uh, Mercedes-AMG efforts uh, with Black Falcon. Uh, team at the Spa 24 Hours, and boy, did they look great! And I was a very popular daddy when I brought back the poster from that for my manga and anime obsessed uh, young lady. Did you say MAGA? Um, wow, manga. it's even. Manga. I mean, I knew Brexit, but MAGA really? Boris Johnson got me no. already. What? What? Make America nearly great again? That one. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> wow alright all right there pal um, but, uh, but what team would I have in the I want to see some Yorkshire manga on the Genetas you know flat cap and cup of tea and misery that's what I want to see but it would have to be grey uh, it would have to be a grey manga it would be I don't know making you know, making I don't know making North Allerton great again I love it uh, Damien, I believe there's only one answer to this in IMSA. Oh. I mean, clearly, there, there's there, there's not even a remote second. It's Corvette racing. I mean, the irony here, and we would have to do the cars in pink, because the most American cars in IMSA, 
big bellowing rough gruff front engine still thankfully just earth shattering earth shaking rumbling gt cars naturally they'd need to be pink featuring some kind of a tasha livery i think that would be the most hilarious thing i think there would be folks threatening to kill themselves trackside having shown up with their big (laughs) corvette racing banners and pounding beers and you know punching cattle and wearing cowboy hats and what so i just i think that'd be high comedy just people wondering what happened uh did did someone take over the corvettes has this team been held hostage and they refuse to change the livery until the, the ransom is paid i just i think this would be the best thing ever what about pink, okay, with um, anime versions of each of the Corvette drivers feminized, and they turn up to race with heavy makeup, false eyelashes, etc., etc., and we can rename it Hello Pretty. That would be lovely. A, the name's perfect. I think you're revealing a little bit too much here because there wouldn't have to be a <laughs> lot of wardrobe change compared to uh, – you know how some of them turn up um you know not 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 looking at you oliver gavin but hey you know that's a, a tall drink of water there in heels it's a it's olivier weekends by the way oh boy all right i think we have thoroughly and authoritatively embarrassed ourselves <laughs> maybe we should stop the stupidity so. do you think we should just say thank you at this point for those who persevered those that have whatever persecution complex where they felt like they needed to have something just bad and be blamed and feel like they were doing some sort of penance involved i'm not sure but i do think we should Uh, say thank you at least and we should that we should say thank you to our partners as well we should say thank you to cooper tires and to the fabulous people at justice brothers and one other thing it's great to have you back, buddy. I know there's some challenges still ahead, but it's nice to hear your voice and wish you all the best with what's coming next. And I know the, the listeners have been writing on social media and in the questions for weeks and weeks with so much good wishes and so much love for yourself and Gibral, and I want to echo it right here, right now. Well, that's very kind of you, and there's no need to get serious to close the show, you silly <laughs> person. Uh, and you know what? We also need to make sure that we incorporate young Mr. Kilby uh from time to time as well so it's he's not just the emergency fill in but you know maybe there's a time where you having been uh punched by Jacques Villeneuve after hearing that you called him out as being Polly Prissy Pants and are getting you know your black eye taped up um you know maybe we could well, have you, Steve you on here from time to time I- I will be at the Suzuka 10 hours in a couple of weeks' time um, and, indeed, on vacation next week. So we can see what uh, what opportunities present themselves there. I have every intention of being contactable. But uh, it's, it, you know what? He did a, a great job for a young lad. Yeah, I wouldn't go that so, far. He did a job. I so, wouldn't put great on it. But, you know, so, the, the, the so question – will, let's leave our, our listeners with this question on the Weekend Sports Cars <laughs> podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. If Graham were to take a week off and Stephen were to slot into that seat, what would be the appropriate rate to charge him? $100? $200? Just trying to find out, you know? Because, look, I wouldn't pay him, but I'm just so, you know, maybe we need he, – see, he thinks this stuff gets offered like he deserves it. No, honestly – 
Steve, so many people turned down the opportunity to fill in for me. We never told him that part. <laughs> he's the only dumb one who said yes. So anyways, yeah. we just don't want him to think should, that he's favored millions. status. Yeah, totally. So let's just with you, dear listeners, giving us some advice. How much should we charge him? Uh, granted, wow. you're the one who pays him. So it's kind of, I guess, in theory, you know, it's still kind of a loop there. But. Anyways, I did try to sell it as a branding opportunity. He wasn't having anything of it. But so, with the challenges he's got in terms of his looks, you know, his uh, his football preferences, all of those. Despite that, he did manage to get words out, which I thought was impressive for a lot of people. Either two hundred and fifty dollars to co-host the show, or <laughs> tattooing the Twisk logo, or just a hashtag tattoo me personally somewhere on his body i think those are currencies i'd be willing to work with here not sure which direction we should go but again dear listener tell us give us a dollar amount kilby should pay to be on or what kind of hashtag breaking exclusive scoop tattoo he might need to have imprinted on his body in perpetuity to uh, gain access to the show these are the burning questions (laughs) right mate that's enough for this nonsense Um, good luck with the move good luck with everything and I hope it'll be B next week rather than a fee paying Stephen Gilby uh, co-host the week in sports cars what's next well uh, tell you what we, we've got uh, IMSA this weekend we do we have IMSA we have Friday's state of the series schedule release some news on categories and competition and then we have a motor race to talk about as well and it tends mm-hmm. to produce a corker so going to look forward to next week's episode uh in the time between now and that episode the sro could announce the formation of gt0 because we're starting to run out of numbers uh but they seem to have a new class each week so who knows not sure what's going to come next week but looking forward to hosting it with you my british brother graham goodwin here on the good old marshall pro podcast named after myself because i have a giant raging ego and I need to defeat Christoph Bushu in that category. We'll speak to you next week. Excellent.